Father mm-hmm. Daniel McShane, yep. our fan of the month. Uh, he's He's been following us for years. He's going to be introducing the show for us. Um, <laughs> let me explain what to say. I know this isn't as funny as it usually is because we're just figuring this out for the first time. But our episode okay. is um, the Brothers Karamazov, the final speech oh. Father Sosima gave before he died. How about that one? Wow. That's really yeah. cool. I haven't read it in you a long time. You got with so. being a priest. Um, yeah. So- <laughs> yeah. That's about it. <laughs> um, you guys are doing a Russian thing. novel right now. This is really uh, interesting. Given Wait, what's going you're the world. reading that novel right now? No, you guys are doing a uh, an episode on on Russia. Oh, novel, like, yeah. Right that, now, like, yeah. We, which is, yeah, um, we try to keep up on very, yeah, very interesting. And, uh, <laughs> okay, so you know the episode. Um, the people on the show tonight is Ross, Sam Mangieri. Did I say your name right, Sam? Yes, sir. I'm sure Father Daniel knows how to say it. I Matt know, Schultz Sam, yeah. and myself. Okay, so you got the episode, you got the names of the hosts, and you should you figure it out from there, okay? What? I mean, like... <laughs> I almost spit my beer out. I don't even know, know what this podcast is called. <laughs> you are being recorded right now. You know, you know what the podcast episode is. Father Zosima, right. final speech before he died in the Brothers Karamazov. And okay. the host yeah, yeah. of the speech guys tonight is Ross, Matt, and myself, and Sam. Oh. Okay. All right. And then right, any other creative people <laughs> put up that. Fantastic. Okay. And action. Uh, what's your podcast called again? <laughs> the speech guys. Right. <laughs> huge fan, clearly. He's a huge Faithful fan. Listener. <laughs> Never misses. All right, welcome to this episode of um, what the the hell? What's the what's the word it called? Uh, The Great Speech Guys? We're no, we're just the Speech Guys. (laughs) This is episode twenty-two. All right, okay, episode twenty-two. All right, you ready to go? Yeah, we're ready. Three, two, one, action. Welcome to episode 22 of The Speech Guys. Uh, Mike Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Sam Mangieri, and Matt Schultz are going to break down the epic speech and the last speech of Father Zosima from the Brothers Karamazov. Hope you enjoy. Cue the music. When you see the road from me it will give you eyes, give you hope, it'll give you perspective I've been back and forth, and yeah, I had my crashes Now I've seen the road, it goes every direction I've never called him father before, so I was like, Father Daniel, Father McShit And I ended up saying the whole thing, I sound like a doofus like, like I'm not even Catholic or something. Anyway. Okay, Matt, it's your show. Boom. All right. Well, we are doing 
as Father Daniel McShane. Introduced that. So we're doing the the final speech from Father Zosima, who is a uh, one of the big characters, at least in the beginning of the novel Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, interesting timing of the speech. Uh, Russian novel. Russia is in the midst of invading Ukraine, um, but still does not uh, take away their valuable literary history. So, um, yeah, Russia's got that going for him. But, uh, but yeah, before we do, um, a little bit about why this speech is meaningful. One, uh, this speech was a bit, I read this in, when was it? Maybe early PT school or so. And it was, uh, interest, it was a, a important part of me just growing as a, an adult. So I just, the, the book was very impactful for me in a more general sense. We'll get into some of that later. Um, this speech, I Remember it just from years ago. Um, didn't remember some of the details, but there are a couple themes that I thought um, were especially meaningful for uh, this day and age. So without further ado, should I just uh, read it? Or Sam, do you want to read it? Because I like your reading voice. And uh, yeah, Sam's our special guest for the evening. And Father Zosima slash Fyodor Dostoevsky expert. Okay. My friends... Pray to God for gladness. Be glad as children, as the birds of heaven. And let not the sin of men confound you in your doings. Fear not that it will wear away your work and hinder its being accomplished. Do not say, sin is mighty, wickedness is mighty, evil environment is mighty, and we are lonely and helpless, and evil environment is wearing us away and hindering our good work from being done. Fly from that dejection, children. There is only one means of salvation, then take yourself and make yourself responsible for all men's sins. That is the truth. You know, friends, for as soon as you sincerely make yourself responsible for everything and for all men, you will see at once that it is really so, and that you are to blame for everyone and for all things. But throwing your own indolence and impotence on others, you will end by sharing the pride of Satan and murmuring against God. God took seeds from different worlds and sowed them on the earth. And his garden grew up and everything came up that could come up. But what grows, lives, and is alive only through the feeling of its contact with other mysterious worlds. If that feeling grows weak or is destroyed in you, the heavenly growth will die away in you. And then you will be indifferent to life and even grow to hate it. That's what I think. So, how many of us have read the Brothers Karamazov from where this speech comes? Yeah, I mean, I already said I did. <laughs> Sam is our expert, and he's read it twice, I think. Sam's our expert, he's read it twice. Just Matt's read it one once. Time. I've read it about 0. 0.6 times times 2. Uh, and mm-hmm. Ross yep. read the Wikipedia page for it. I've got lots of opinions on it, yeah. Lots of thoughts. What? So, Sam, since you're our resident Brothers Karamazov, Brothers K, among uh, the intellectuals, call it, um, where where's the speech, like, come up at in the story? 
and how does it fit into the story as a whole generally? Sure. It comes a little shy of halfway through the whole book and um, it comes as this priest, beloved monk, is on his on death's door. I mean, he legit he has a couple hours to live and he's deciding to call around him all his loved ones um, and um, to explain to them, you know, his philosophy on life, essentially the most important gems he has to, to bestow as far as advice goes. This guy was kind of a controversial monk insofar as a lot of monks were jealous of him because he had a um, he was noted for sanctity. I don't think they noted any like miraculous healings per se, but people knew he's the real deal. And some of the older brothers even um, were jealous of that. It's kind of sad. They even rejoiced because his body kind of stank within the first 24 hours. He didn't have the odor of sanctity on on his deathbed. The the breath of... The breath of corruption that next chapter is titled. Oh, man, I love that. such a fascinating part. It really is. It is. Um, And they definitely, certain corrupt people tease um, the young boy, Alyosha, who was a monk. They tease him because they know how much he respected this guy. This guy is a giant in his mind. And Alyosha, to me, is the main character. In a sense, he's the one I fell in love with the most. He is is one of the brothers Karamazov. There are three. Um, Alyosha is the guy I'm speaking of, the boy. He is the youngest of the three. Dimitri's the middle child. Ivan is the oldest. There are three sons of a profligate guy, just a, a licentious waste of a man. I mean, this guy is seriously so loathsome. You read the book and you're just like, this dad is the dad I'd never want. You know what I mean? Um, Was well-to-do though, had a ton of money. Um, All the brothers kind of had money throughout their life. Um, and there's basically two love triangles are kind of at the center of this book. And that's how the book ends is focusing around these two love triangles and the love triangles. Uh, one is between this town lady named Grishenka, who's this beautiful woman, very, you know, um, attractive woman. And she plays with the dad of the three sons, as well as the middle son. And she has both the dad and that middle son just craving after her, just hot and like passionate to, uh, there's like a, they just want to consume her. It's so weird. And, um, and so the dad and the son are super jealous of each other. They don't know which one will get her in the end. And so that's kind of bizarre. Um, And then you have another love triangle between this kind of prideful woman, but like respectable uh, woman named Katya. And the middle son, who's in that other love triangle, that middle son and the other brother are kind of both have feelings for this woman. And she at different times has had feelings for uh, both of them. I'm sure there's stuff I missed in the book, but it's significant enough to say. And it all kind of culminates because at the end of the book, there's a trial and the middle brother, Dimitri, um, is accused of murdering his father. And so the whole like latter fifth or latter sixth of the book is all that trial, the whole town, this small Russian town or medium-sized Russian town, I don't know, comes to this trial to, they don't know whether he's going to get acquitted or um, guilty or innocent. They don't know what's going to happen, but they're all tuned in. Um, And, you know, tons of people want him to, to be jailed and go to Siberia and other people want him to get let off. But where this speech happens 
is, like I said, just shy of the middle of the book. And um, Alyosha, the one son I haven't quite talked about much yet, is that monk. And he is really a saintly, saintly young man. And he's destined to be so forever. He thought he was destined to be so in this monastery where this old monk is dying. But he had it wrong. The monk, among other things he said on his dying, um, in his dying moments, was that this son, this spiritual son of his, Alyosha, was going to have to leave the monastery. He was going to have to go out in the world and basically live as best he can, bring joy in the midst of the sorrow that exists out there, bring order to the chaos that exists in his family. And so um, that's one of the things that Father Zosima says. And then he kind of gives this general advice to all of humanity. And that's probably what's going to frustrate us a little bit as we chat about it, is it's so universal and like perhaps whiffs of socialism are there that it's kind of like, you know, a little uncomfortable to hear. And um, I don't pretend to like all of it either, but there's some good stuff there. (laughs) You know, some people don't know this, but the famous line if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That that actually came from the trial what? in really? this novel. Not not OJ's. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to no, say, I don't remember not. that part. <laughs> that must have been the point six you read twice. So I reread the um, whole chapter, which isn't super long, but the whole chapter entitled Conversations with Father Zos- Conversations and Exhortations of Father Zosima. And, um, you know, so he also, in this chapter, I, I made a note of it. Um, what are the other subsections called? The Russian Monk and His Possible Significance of Masters and Servants of prayer, of love, and of contact with other worlds, which is where this part came from. Can a man judge his fellow creatures of hell and hellfire and mystic revelation? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I found more interesting stuff in some of these other sections, um, particularly that first one, the Russian monk and his possible significance. You know, if we're going to go off topic a little bit, I think what Dostoevsky does really well, and I was reading some other things um, in preparation for this, is that he is not someone who sets up the straw man argument, right? He's not someone who like takes just this really cheap uh, representation of, say, atheism, to put it really simply, and, like, combats that. No, he he makes atheism as elegant and as handsome and as strong and as intelligent as possible, and he uses that to sort of go head-to-head with in his in his dialogue and his content he creates in his, his story. And you really see that in that Russian monk part of it. Now, that just kind of set things up as a point of, like, interest there. In this particular section, um, let me think. I, I made some different notes here. I, I'm just going to just kind of get us rolling here, make something happen. Um, one of those opening lines is, if your prayer is sincere, there will be a new feeling and new meaning in it. 
So two directions that sort of struck me about that one. I made the note to myself off to the side. I said, really? What makes a prayer sincere? How do we teach that? When do we see that in someone else? So there are a couple things that go the opposite direction with that of practical experience. One is that, man, there's times where I've felt like, like that first movement of prayer was sincere, right? And it just sort of, in the end, felt like actually nothing. Not actually new. Not actually meaningful. But, at the same time, um, there's a gentleman. He, um, he's the retired bishop of our diocese here, Belleville, Bishop Braxton. And a friend of mine said this, and I definitely agree. And he said this, which I agree with, that Bishop Braxton prayed better than anyone he'd ever seen. And there was something, it was almost, how, how would I describe it? There was something about the way that Bishop Braxton, I mean, not did, but continues to do still. Um, obviously not quite so publicly, but there, there is some kind of like investment of his whole self in his prayer that he would do. One, one thing that always struck, struck out with me when he would ask for my like prayer intentions since I was a theology teacher at Jabot Catholic High School, we were interacting uh, in that way. He'd ask, like, you know, what's the name of this person I should pray for? What's what's their last name? How do you spell that? It was, it was like this very much full investment of himself into this prayer. And so what the sort of connection I see between that and this piece of text from the speech is that being sincere in prayer is very much parallel and in the same breath and tone as really what's like required of like love on this earth, right? Because oftentimes we hear love as like, well, love is just like this really foofy and sort of like gentle and peaceful thing, which, which sometimes it is. It does need to be that way. But it's also wild and elegant and courageous and awkward. And I think what Bishop Braxton did was he really brought that home with prayer. Because it's even more complicated to create all of this texture to prayer, to really make it sincere, to make it more than just this like thought that you sort of wrap around yourself as tight as you can for 37 seconds. So... That, that's those, those are some of the things that, that struck me about that particular piece. I definitely think that, like, in my own life, there's, <clears throat> I don't know, I guess, just to be, like, speak from personal experience, and not that I'm, like, a professional at it, obviously, but I think there's some times that um, I feel like I am more, I don't know, like you were, you, like you said, fully present, maybe, like, when I think of when I've prayed sincerely, like the thing that comes to mind is the times where maybe I've actually really given it my attention, if that makes sense. So like, um, you know, it's like sometimes I feel like it's easy to get distracted or, you know, I might pray because I feel like I'm supposed to pray right now. Um, and not that that's bad. Cause like, you know, maybe I was actually supposed to pray in that moment, but, um, I just feel like, and I don't, 
like have a specific oh I'll give you all the details and everything but there I just I think there's times when it does seem like it's a little bit more um like I kind of like if you're talking to somebody you know sometimes you feel kind of tempted to there's a lot in your mind going on and you're like only halfway giving them your attention and like sometimes that's not necessarily fully your your fault where like I feel like there's other times where you can really like live in the moment um and I, I do feel like there's been times in my life where I've been able to better do that in prayer. Um, I don't know if I necessarily have like a, a magic though, like, oh, this is what I did differently to do so. I would say, I mean, this is one part of the speech where I would, I don't know. Um, I guess I, I don't really like what he says a ton. Can you, um, can you elaborate on that? I mean, he seems to make it, well, yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was basically it. No, you, um, I mean, I, I'm reminded of like um, like a Saint Ignatius um, and like the rules for discernment and things like that, where um, like certainly there is a, a certain amount of attention you need to pre- you need to pay to like what it is that you're doing and what you're bringing to um, prayer to like some sort of uh, conversation with God. Essentially, that's. And that's kind of what prayer is in a nutshell. Because, um, I, I mean, if you're not, if you're doing it in a time and place where that isn't your best, you know, where your tension is divided and all these other things, like, yeah, like that's not a good place to, like, get consolation, you know, which is kind of what he's talking about, like with a new feeling, a new meaning, um, you know, which will give you fresh courage and you'll understand the prayer's education, right? So, like, all the stuff he says seems to, like, remind me of like what St. Ignatius calls consolation. Um, which he seems to be like, if your person's here, then this, which like, that's not always like, that's not really what like Ignatius says. Like, like, yeah, there's a certain amount of attention you need to pay to that. But after that, like it's a grace and a grace is a gift and a gift is not like earned, you know? So it's not entirely like your efforts. Um, that would like lead to something like that. So that much, I suppose, I don't know what, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe he has something more full to say later on. You know, this is uh, if this is a speech from his deathbed. Like, obviously, there's you can't be infinitely nuanced in your theology, but um, but yeah, this seemed to yeah. I guess that message just kind of left on its own. Um, just seems a little lacking, I guess. Something I thought of reading that paragraph. Um... And this is coming from the only guy that hasn't read not even point six of the book. Um, so <clears throat> feel free to, you know, our experts interject if you feel like I'm taking the wrong angle. But I found it kind of interesting um, when I was kind of like reading about the book and uh, Dostoevsky and all that, um, just how much. So now Dostoevsky, like the actual writer, like how much suffering was in his life. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, his first wife passes away. Um, he was actually exiled to Siberia for a while, um, suffered from health problems, suffered from money problems, and he lost two of his four children, um, at a young age. I think one was like a day or a couple days old, like really little. And one was like three years old. So it just kind of struck me like, man, that guy had a lot of suffering around him. So, and not that it's a perfect analogy, but I didn't know, and maybe I'm reaching a little bit, but 
just having kind of read about a lot of his life and the stuff he went through, and then reading this excerpt, the first part, I don't know, not like he's trying to tell us something, but when he talks about um, <clears throat> pray to God for gladness, be glad as children as the birds of heaven, let not the sin of men confound you in your doings, fear not, and he goes on and on. And he's talking about sin and not letting that like kind of take over you. Um, but I don't know, I just was kind of, it kind of struck me a little bit, like if there was something in his attempt there to like, in the midst of, you know, he talks about sin, but in the midst of a life full of suffering, um, you know, the um, kind of the importance of still having the outlook or perspective of gladness. Um, so like I said, I don't know, not having read the whole book or really having a good understanding of Father Zosima's, that character, or like, you know, just a pretty basic reading the spark notes, knowing of who he is. Like, I didn't know how well that fit, but that's kind of where my mind went, I guess, reading the first part of the first paragraph. Yeah, and he does kind of finish that paragraph talking a lot about more intercession, right? So like, I guess being sincere in your pursuit of intercession, maybe that's what he was kind of getting at as opposed to like, you know, a nuanced, like detailed thing about prayer and how to like interpret things but um but yeah when you mentioned like the just the intercession i know that's that's kind of like the role alyosha ends up playing in the book and maybe that's i don't know if intercessor is like too i don't know if that's an accurate title but like he seems to kind of have that like he doesn't um he doesn't play like not i mean he's certainly a hero of the story but doesn't play like a hero role in sort of like having this grand success you know, it's not like he saves his brother from jail. It's not like he, you know, saves some life or brings his family back together or, you know, has the, some sort of like really grand success. But he's just kind of very consistently and persistently like present and um, and just like always like just trying to like just do what he can and like just be with and accompany people. Um in like as holy of a way as he knows how throughout the book. In intercession, I know there is, uh, I know me and you have talked about this a couple of times, Mike, about the onion chapter. Do you remember that story? Mm, classic. Do you remember the onion story? Like, do you remember the, right. onion? yeah, like tell it. Cause I think yeah, our, yeah, yeah. Our, I have vague yes. recollections of it, but I think oh. I remember <clears throat> you telling, speaking about it pretty detailed. Yeah, so the onion, the onion is one of those stand those chapters in the book that can stand alone on its own. Um, it's a it's, it's a I think immediate precursor to the famous Grand Inquisitor chapter, I believe, and it's I believe it's told by Ivan, the atheist handsome brother. Almost as handsome as Ross Johnson. Not quite, though. Ross is the whole package because he's Christian and good-looking. And it takes place in hell. There is a there's some sort of interaction between this woman and an angel. And an angel comes to this woman and says, hey... You know, we've been checking our our reports, our information. We found that you gave an onion generously 
to to someone in need at one point in your life. So you're you're actually supposed to be in heaven. So by means physically of this onion, this woman is lifted up into heaven. And as she's being lifted up, all these different people who are suffering in hell right alongside her, like grabbing for her feet and legs, and she kicks them off and she says, that's my onion. And she falls back into the depths of hell for all eternity. Oh man, that's a great, great story. Yeah. I mean, what, trying to figure out like, point out a particular significance to this particular speech you know there there's an obvious like melon is what ross again there's an obvious melancholy strain to uh dostoevsky's writing in this book and other books and it's like <clears throat> if you're melancholy with out having some sort of like positive resolution of the world in reality that means that you're a nihilist which means that you're a very realistic person because there's lots to be nihilistic about right but um there's one level up from that i mean i just had a thought while i'm talking okay this is that middle thought okay there's one level up from nihilism and that means that you laugh at it that means you're like wes anderson okay but then that's it. You laugh at it, and then that's the end of the show. Okay? One level up from that is where Dostoevsky is. Um, where you acknowledge the sort of things, and Jordan Peterson to some extent too, where you recognize the sort of things that there are reasons to be sad for in this life and have a hard time making sense of. But if you can find a way to find, to even outline a path in your mind and heart to find salvation, then that's, that's really where the story of humanity is at, if that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? So one other bit from WCFC's license drive that sort of drives Real quick, home. before you do that. Before you do that, Mike, could you summarize what you said about – so you said there's the the nihilist level, then there's Wes Anderson, and then there's the Dostoevsky slash Jordan Peterson. Summarize in like one, maybe two sentences. If being every <clears> – every millennia has its trend, right now – it's nihilism, right? If you're nihilist, you're realist. Agree? Sure. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, good. Um, so then it's a question of what do you do with that nihilism? And some people just wallow in their nihilism, thinking that is enough to live this life. And I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, you can still eat and breathe as a nihilist. You know, you're not going to like suffocate on anything except your own thoughts. Um, but there's a level up from that. Like, how do you, how do you create art with your life as a nihilist? One level up from that is someone like Wes Anderson. You laugh at it. You make fun of the stuff that doesn't make sense. Well, that, that gets you so far, maybe not quite all of the way. That doesn't, that doesn't help you deal with your 
grandmother dying uh, alongside you or a loved one dying of dementia. That one extra level is where Dostoevsky or Jordan Peterson takes it, is if you can still see Christ, if you can still see the ultimate end towards which we are called to strive, despite a world that at a very superficial level, sort of, is nihilist, then that, that, there's something that's so profoundly artful about that when you see it depicted in film or story that just makes you go, wow, or something like that. Film stories that I see portray that, Calvary. Um, what else? There's a film coming out called Father Stew, where you see that going on, Grand Torino, where they simultaneously acknowledge the sort of confusion we encounter in life, but still in a very artful way, direct that nihilism towards some absolute objective, positive meaning. That was a lot more than one or two it seconds. It was different yeah, than the first time. Slightly different. longer. It was different ones. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try it again. You said, like, about... fun, fun fact, though, you mentioned like things being cat- or, you know turned into film. The Brothers Karamazov movie has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I saw some clips of that in research. I, I could see where that comes from. But, uh, but yeah, so it apparently – which I think that – I mean it might even be a testament to the book just because I think that there's so much depth here. Um, and I brought the – I don't know. I, I suppose I couldn't find the exact quote from Orwell, but I brought this up at the last speech because I think it makes sense and I think it's great to – say again but george Orwell apparently said there are two things he wouldn't depict in film and that's uh sex and prayer because they're they're just too powerful to capture in any sort of meaningful way um so i think that applies here too because like i think a lot of um a lot of this book is very prayerful not in like a uh yeah i guess not in like your kind of normal sentimental sort of way but they're there are these just like groans of humanity you know like throughout the book coming from like all over the place you know whether it's dimitri like longing for grushenka or whether it's this like cretin of a dad who's just trying to screw over his son you know or even smirdyakov like that really likes you know like uh i don't know how to describe him he's just like a very devilish sort of like i don't know just very sneaky sort of guy just kind of undercutting people and just trying to watch people suffer and burn you know like there's just all these like groans that that i think are just kind of just longing for something that's a good point yeah and that that smerdyakov he was actually the half son or the half brother of these guys he was the son of the dad, Theodore, and the town kind of, I don't, I don't want to say the town whore, but like this woman in town who was kind of a dunce, like she she legitimately wasn't that smart at all, but I suppose she was pretty or something, enough for this guy to be attracted to her, to solicit, you know, to want sex with her, and they conceived a kid, and the whole town rumored that it was Smerdyakov, the son who he 
he kind of raises, or the guy that kind of grows up in his household as the, the servant. So that's another level of disorder there. But um, yeah, uh, Matt, to your point about the groans for something more, the, the groans for happiness, um, they are evident in every character. And I think that's why, like, I really am, I was mystified by Alyosha's heroism in his ability to be in the midst of such like moral corruption and terrible choices on the part of people and selfishness. And yet his desire, his belief that he could still be a good person, a good man in the midst of that, you know? And I think it came at a time in my life where like, like, for example, I started reading this before, you know, Christmas and Christmas, you know, I'm around a ton of people who aren't, you know, praying daily and gosh, is my uncle going to bring up, you know, his son going to a strip club and that's going to be awkward because I'm going to have to like correct my uncle and stuff. I'm like, no, but Alyosha could do it. Alyosha could have his own possession of himself as a man, not freak out. And he could move amongst people knowing that, um, knowing in a sense, he's not going to be judged for everybody's sin which is kind of paradoxical in respect to what we're talking about, right? Like this monk kind of says, no, own everybody's sin as your own. But I think like you bear the two truths in tandem. If at once you decide, okay, in a sense, I'll bear everybody's sin. In a sense, I'll take it all on me, knowing that like I'm not perfect and that, but for the grace of God, I could have been in their their shoes. Then you can kind of navigate amidst these relationships be merciful, give people the benefit of the doubt, love folks and give your own witness an example of what it means to be somebody pursuing the voice of God. And so, yeah, I guess I was just inspired by that. Like, that's why he's clearly like my favorite character. The youngest son is because, um, he really, um, he strove to, he strove to see everybody, the groans of these people and acknowledge them as groans rather than like a black mark that cloaks their whole character. You know what I'm saying? There's, we don't have to go this direction, but we have the capacity to go this way based upon what Sam referenced there. I, hmm. Um, it was something to the effect of how to deal with, other people's sin um in a sort of like artful organic way and what zosima references and you reference is that like being responsible for all men's sin i think that what's in there for me is that that's to recognize that you have the capacity to sin in the same way and with that in mind, it gives you a certain like layer of like mercy and empathy with which to navigate it when it expresses itself in other people, if that makes sense. Okay, so to put a little another point on that thought, I remember so there's another podcast when you're not listening to the speech guys called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's uh, the story of... Have any of you guys listened to this? It's a really good podcast. Oh, wait, because Landon sent it us. Gosh, you guys suck as friends, not listening to Landon's podcast. <laughs> he's, he 
he sends. It's really good. It's like 10 episodes. But it's about the rise of a mega church and how it wasn't exactly a cult, but there are certain elements of it that were that way. And members afterwards and the commentator for the podcast series says something like, if you do not believe you could end up in a cult, you are exactly the person who will end up in a cult. And it's the exact same way. And that was really striking and made a lot of sense. And that makes so much, and that connects with what you were saying is that when we treat sin and others, if we act as if that could not happen to us, then we're not going to be able to deal with it in a mature, artful sort of way. Um, and that, that connects as well as what Matt, you were saying about prayer and sex in film. If you, yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So was what did, uh, what did the rest the of you guys oh, think ahead, about, man. oh no, uh, no, add some bookular context to, uh, to things. Um, all I was going to say was I remember being moved, I think, even to the point of tears. Um, it was one of maybe four or five parts in the book where I did cry. Um, to your point about wow. about remembering like <laughs> – OK, apparently you just can't – Apparently Mike didn't listen to the Jimmy guy. V speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes. OK, so yeah. No, I actually sobbed ten times, but I'm glad I didn't divulge the real number because I would have been hazed even harder on this podcast. Um, and it was 15. You see, I keep backtracking. Um, no, but... But on the 19th time the you times cried, I, cried. I think it was this one, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the times that I cried so hard I needed, like, a therapist was... No. Um, this... The, the Onion reference, right? You know, thankfully in the last 10 years... I've been brought to a few moments that I didn't think I'd be brought to that did make me feel like I was on an even playing field as far as weakness with other people, like on the same level as those people that I normally say they're there. Oh, it's such a poor thing that would, you know, sad they found themselves there. No, like, you know, in the presence of a priest, just like, you know, in a, in a moment of like, here, please, you know, heal me or please like, you know, Help me fix this. And so Alyosha looks at Grishenka, who I think is perhaps the most like gross person in this thing, because she's, you know, playing with dad and son and just loving it. But there in a moment of her weakness, she kind of confesses to how ugly she thinks she is in, in her soul. And it was in, in the context of them talking about the onion. Now, when Mike brought up the onion earlier, I didn't know the story to the latter half of that story. I didn't know the spot about she grasps for the onion on her way to hell and then she end, or on her way to heaven and ends up going down to hell. I didn't remember that part of the story because what I was moved by in the story was there's a part where she says, Alyosha um, points out something good she did for some woman. She claims something good that she did in her past. And she's like claiming it with pride, like, there was one time when I was good. And, um, you know, and she's like, that was, Alyosha says, it was an onion. You know, it was your onion. And she's like sobbing and she's like so broken. 
but you get the sense that he's looking at her, not like, oh man, I can't wait to escape this moment because this is awkward. She's in such a mess and I'm like such a not mess that um, I just can't wait to say enough to get out of this situation to where she won't think that I'm contributing to her thinking she's a terrible person. That's not what the vibe you get. The vibe you get is he really does see in her some possible capacity in himself and he really is pitying it. And I guess, again, it was just one of those moments where it's like, man, like, there are some people who really who really are able to look at people with such compassion and call out the goodness that is deep embedded within them. And those are saintly folks, you know? And so I just saw the cry of des- despair in her, like, please, like, isn't there something good in me? And he was like, no, there really is. And um, yeah, she was sobbing and wailing about that. But um, yeah. So the... Um... I, th- I mean, we brought this up in a few different ways, but um, like, let's attack this more directly. Um, what do you guys think of his idea that um, that there is one means of salvation, right? This, so this is his quote. Take yourself and make yourself responsible for all men's sins. That is the truth, you know, friends. For as soon as you know or as you sincerely make yourself responsible for everything and all men... You see at once that it is really so, and that you are to blame. That you are to blame for everyone and for all things. Like, do you guys believe that's true? I'll speak up. I, I don't have a ton to say, so that's why I'll speak up first. I don't think it's true. I think he misses the mark. At the same time, I think he lived by that for some reason, and it worked out great for him because, like, think of it. If you really did, if you had a strong enough psychology and mentality to where you weren't going to be crushed by that idea, it's not a bad idea to live under, right? Like, you're not going to be a bad person for living under that mode of operation, but it isn't the one means of salvation. I think he's like way off on that. So, I would, um, I would, I would say no. I don't agree that you know we are t- responsible. What I I don't have it open right now. Um, the if you're saying like take your make yourself responsible for all men's sins, um, like I I think I would agree with Sam. I would say no to that um, as being like a true way to look at things. I was trying then to step back and say like okay, and again haven't read the book so take it for what it's worth, but. I was like, well, was that, I mean, he said those words, but I was just trying to think of like, what else could he have meant? Or, you know, was he, was there some something cloaked in there that's interesting? And it kind of made me think a little bit about, I searched it once, but I couldn't find the quote, but I've heard before, um, Thomas Merton, I believe said something to the effect, I'll paraphrase, like, do you want to end all the wars in the world? Start with what's going on in your own heart. Or something like that. Um, and I think that maybe touches on a little bit of what you guys were saying on like the, you know, I am capable of doing all these things I'm saying these people do. Um, so as far as a, yeah, agreeing with that outlook, I would say no, I do not. But to try to still take something away from it that I think might be practical and good to think through or live by would just... Um, yeah, I guess just kind of this idea that um, 
even though I'm responsible for it, it I guess it just kind of, sh- or I'm not responsible for it, it kind of shifts the focus of how you look at it, um, which I think is, I guess, kind of restating kind of somewhat you guys had said a little bit earlier. Um, but I just, I don't know, that's kind of the way I thought about it to make it make more sense in my head. Mike, do you have a, uh, a more sympathetic view of Zosima's universal responsibility idea, or are you, uh, you more of a critic? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think Sam expressed it pretty well where I, it's, it's a noble idea, but yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people can't tolerate the idea that they are responsible for other people's sins, even in this sort of really ephemeral way. Um, whether or not they can tolerate it, is it true though? Is it true that we are responsible in some way? For the sins of others. In some way, I th- I'd have to say, like, certainly. Um, because I, I guess I think that's, if, if you, if you were to add in some way to the sentence, I think it would be, make perfect sense, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think he, he <laughs> so, but, okay, here's, here's the thought he qualifies, of this. Yeah, I mean, it, he doesn't I, qualify I it, which gives it its strength, but... A few weeks ago, Matt and I were having whiskey non-recorded in a non-recorded manner, just like a bunch of barbarians, and I posed a question to him that, and myself, that, to put it generally, so that we can keep it recorded here... The kind of effects of, like, generational sin. How do the behaviors of one generation affect another, particularly with regards to sin, particularly with regards to, like, missing the mark? And uh, I don't know. I mean, I I think just that thought in general gives a lot of weight to this particular thought that with respect to a lot of things, but particularly one generation to another within families, there are things that people can do, which aren't necessarily a sin on their part, but that can cause sin in in others. And I think that maybe the sort of like the come away there, that maybe is like the two cents that maybe you're looking for, is that I think that we treat life in a much more in our decisions and our behaviors in a much more like serious manner even those very small ones um when we think of life that way when we think of ourselves as being responsible for others sin yeah yeah no i i totally agree with that and which is why i'm i'm i think a little more sympathetic and uh yeah, to to the idea of like universal responsibility, because like, even if I mean, I think what you said is true, Mike, earlier about like, are you the type of person who would join a cult, right? So like, you have to, um, or I think it's helpful to mm. just like, go to the place in your soul where you could see yourself doing something really bad, you know, like what, what realistic scenario, or what scenario could realistically make me commit a terrible crime right and i mean i think if if 
I mean, no one's a Superman, right? Like, I think if given the right scenario, a lot of us could do bad things. You know, if like all of these things were working against us, you know, um, I would say certainly if like as far in so far as we like separate ourselves from um, from grace, right? So some sort of like divine intervention, right? Um, but like. I think the other reading of this is that, like, not only can you do things in the future, but, like, you've already done things in your past that have influenced things like mm. like other people sinning, right? So, like, one example would be, like, I mean, we've all been in school locker, you know, gym, lock, you know, high school locker rooms. Like, I'm sure we've heard all sorts of dirty jokes and, like, guys talking about girls in demeaning ways, you know, and like, I'm sure there've been times we've either one participated or two, like just sat idly by. Right. And didn't like confront that with like, Hey, like that's someone's sister. Like, how dare you talk about a woman that way? Like she deserves a lot better than that. Like in some way we've contributed to the, like the negative formation of all these people who now like assume that all guys think this way and assume that that's the right way to think. Right. In terms of like looking at girls as sex objects or, or whatever, you know? So like we've all participated in like this small way, like this, I would say relatively small sin compared to like doing something really terrible, like being a pimp or something, you know, like we've all contributed in a small way to the formation of people who do do that sort of stuff who do do the really bad things like, you know, participating in prostitution or whatever. Um, so I think in that way, like, you know, I think this is a very fair warning and if, and like a really good calling to be like, you need to like vet your life in a radical way. Like that's, it's not good enough. And like, Jesus doesn't call you to like kind of, be as good, be good generally. And like, you know, like you need like be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect, mm -hmm. you know, like to really yeah. um, push yourself and make, and like see how it is that like any small thing, any sin that you do like echoes, right. And it kind of expands and, you know, there's like a ripple effect there. Right. So you do something negative, you know, you'd sin in a small way that can influence a lot of other sins going forward and like vice versa. Right. So like you allow you, like you put grace in this, in this moment and like you allow God to work through you in like a specific moment and like, all right, that can echo as well. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of, maybe I'm, that's too sympathetic of a reading and maybe I'm putting words in there that Zosima doesn't say, but I guess that's kind of how I, or why I like that, that this segment. So I think just score to keep us like moving around and stretching our existential legs a little bit. I feel like this is sort of a nice connection to the sort of like discussion point you wrote down, Matt, Eastern collectivism versus Western individualism. Yeah, because that's kind of like, well, I mean, I think in, in America, there's the left and right, which I think would conflict on this sort of stuff. Right. So there's just like the political, um, and then there's the, like just the, the collective, which is, you know, where do things play out? Where does reality play out in its most 
substantial way? Like, does it play out in the matter in the this the group versus does it play out on the the level of the individual? And I actually, don't think like this quote is like purely collectivist. I think there's a strong individualist component to it. But I, I think that's I guess that's why I really like this quote and this idea because I think it does kind of cut across a lot of these sort of party lines, so to speak. So like I don't know. Have you guys? I guess what what if did you guys think of this quote in that way at all, or is this just kind of a a weird thought or weird connection? First off, am I the only one here who actually has been in a cult, or have you guys too? <laughs> just messing. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> Not recently. Although looking back to like high school football, I think there are like elements of that that were like actually cultish. You know what I mean? It's like you chant things together. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. There are elements of that that are kind of like that. Sam's question was, have you any of us actually been in a cult, Mike? Is, uh, does that resonate with you? <laughs> no, don't get distracted by that. Matt, would you... State succinctly your question one more time, or yeah. So, well, I guess the um, in terms of so, like the the idea of collectivism, meaning that you are infinitely responsible for everyone, or, or like reality plays itself out on the level of the group, versus like the Western idea of individualism, where you're responsible for yourself and everything plays out on the level of the individual. I guess, what do you tend towards yourself? And is this, like, do you see this as playing a role in terms of, like, communism in the East and capitalism in the West? Um, Yeah, do you see this playing a role? Mike, so I I think, well, you started bringing this up, and then I kind of interrupted. So, like, was there a... Was there more to the thought that you were going to say, or did you have like a question about this topic that is maybe uh, more fruitful? Maybe a so. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. So I, I got a thought that's just out there. It's out there, but I'm just going to throw it out. Don't podcast see, see, It's going to it's going to bounce around. See what happens. So the ways that we like perceive um individualism in our lives like we sort of like lean into that like okay i want to lose a few pounds like right that's a very like individualistic pursuit um the stuff that we do at work hmm, it's generally fairly individualistic um but collectivism like how how do we see our behaviors relate to a larger group? That's sort of the essence of collectivism. And to what extent does that play... To what extent, like, is there a space carved our, out in our heart for that? That's sort of the question at play here in the sort of, like, thought experiment or discussion they have thrown out. Um, okay, it's just, it's, I'm jogging along, gonna run with these a little bit. Um, 
there's something that is so I'm all, like Sam. I'm always like the the anti-racist guy, like thinking about like different things about that movement, and just like, hmm, match the racist guy. <laughs> <laughs> And there's something that is right and good about anti-racism in the sense, well, other than, like, okay, well, anyway. Other than the obvious sense. <laughs> other than, yeah. Um, and that's, like, the collectivist attitude towards it, right? Where it's like, okay, there are things that we do in this life which maybe you didn't have direct um, responsibility with regards to your actions towards, but it is important in order to solve this thing, in order to have, that we have this like broad collectivist idea towards it. Now, as I've heard the um, neuro... neuro Neuro, he's not a neurologist, neuroscientist, uh, Michael Shermer explained, there's a certain, like, parallel, maybe it's not true, but at least, like, with respect to narrative, there's a certain parallel between the Christian story of original sin and anti-racism from an academic perspective, as I always state. And it's this. Because often, remember, I, you, I'm sure we've all heard before when we said or someone else said it, it's like, Adam and Eve, they ate the apple, not me. Why, why do I carry that original sin? I didn't do nothing, right? So that, that's like the Christian, the Judeo-Christian story of the collectivist attitude towards original sin. It's because of who we are that we take on that sin. And as I've heard Michael Shermer explain it, what you see is a very similar story um, sort of emerging and sort of coalescing anti-racism is that, well, yeah, you did not own slaves, but because you're white, you experienced this privilege. And so therefore, the first step towards redemption is to acknowledge this privilege and that and then from there you go on with x y and z or anti-racism work whatever whatever and so i think you know without going into the same sort of things as other episodes with anti-racism stuff what you see there is this hunger for collectivism right there's all these different areas of her life that we're satisfying this individualist need for moving forward, but where is that collectivist work coming from? And in the past, you know, it maybe come from whatever church that you were a part of. Um, but now, you know, that's it's it's being satisfied in, in other ways, maybe. So I don't know. That that's just something that you know, maybe that's there, maybe it's not. It's an interesting thought, maybe. Well, I certainly see like the connection in collectivism and like the anti-racism idea. Um, but I guess like uh, perhaps, perhaps like the way that Zosima's um, I, concept of universal responsibility cuts across that, and like I think 
maybe counters the more popular conception and perhaps like the less, I would argue, the less noble conception of anti-racism, you know, I guess how it's kind of used for political purposes is like, um, all right, like that's your responsibility. You know what I mean? He doesn't say like, therefore, you know, make these organizations and teach every, you know, and, and like have this like make this everyone else's problem. You know, like he kind of like um, demands that we like address like our problems individually. You know, so like there are collect there are problem there are things that you do as an individual that affect society, right? I I don't think anyone would disagree with that. That like something I do do now like will echo in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, but like the solution isn't like cram down, like top down, um, I don't know, propaganda, right? Like the solution isn't cram down, top down, like education or top down policies that like remedy all of these sins of the past. Like the solution is like look into your heart and like be a, like a discerning person and like see whatever problems that you have and see and like discern whichever ways that you contribute to this problem and like address that because like that's you know it's it's almost collectivist and it's like in the diagnosis of the problem but it's individualist in like its application or in like finding a solution which i think is like that's kind of what cuts across like i guess like the the party line so to speak because like certainly there's like a strong collectivist and like, I mean, Sam, you mentioned it earlier, like there is a socialist sounding thing to it, right? Like you're responsible for everyone else, um, you know, therefore, you know, everyone's do, you know, you, you, therefore you you don't, you shouldn't have private property. You should just, you know, all of your, everything you own should be distributed amongst people, you know? So like there, there's certainly a, a socialist sounding thing, but but he seems to like put the onus on the individual, which I think kind of cuts, yeah, like I said, kind of cuts across these like sort of popular like political um, categories that we, we kind of view things. Which is why I think Jordan Peterson's kind of like viewed as in like a lot of circles as like, like an alt-right figure, so to speak, you know, which I don't think is appropriate like depiction of him. But like like, if you've heard him speak, like, he'll admit that, like, there are problems, like, on a societal level, but, like, he sees, like, all right, well, clean your room, you know, like, look at, look to your, look, you know, like, look to your own, like, personal, like, situation, like, I think there's a lot of analogy between, like, the Jordan Peterson clean your room shtick, if you want to call it that, or, like, that message, and then, like, the Father Zosima, like, hey, you're responsible for things, too, so... Hmm. Sam, can you share one more part of the book that made you cry? Sure. I mean, I not cry. Of course like... you didn't cry, but like, you know, whatever you did do, <laughs> share it. I was actually going to, before we left, I was going to make sure that I like acted more insecure about the fact that you guys were hazing me for that. Because <laughs> actually the Jimmy V one was the first one I listened to. That's what hooked me. Nice. Everyone's got a there's, first hook with the speech, guys. There's been one more since then, right? Yeah, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. 
Okay. Haven't our heard that yet, actually. Our second most popular episode. That's true. It is yeah. our second most. And since we've got the... Uh, I'm glad you guys measured that. Oh yeah, and since we've got the CEO of Fiat Films here, um, <laughs> hashtag Fiat Films, look it up on the Google machine or wherever your internet is. But uh, yeah, I'm sure this Do will it. be the... <laughs> Seriously, hire me. Third. Let's go, man. I'm just, I just bought... Well, I'm going to buy um, a $2,000 annual subscription to Musicbed so I can start using some real music, like some good music. So hire me. I'll get you some awesome vids, awesome music. Shame. We already no, got but, um, awesome plug. music by Adam What's-His-Face. <laughs> I love that song. <clears throat> when you see the road from different perspectives. Especially our perspective, though. That's the best way to see That's the road. That's really the only way to see the road. <laughs> it took a while to break my perspective from that of uh, that cult I got caught up in. But that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Um Another part that I cried in that I'm happy to own, and this this is actually why I picked it up again, was because I had forgotten some details surrounding this, and I was like, dude, I remember that moving me so much the first time I read it, maybe six years ago, and I'm like, I got to get back in there. So I picked this up about four months ago, Brothers K, second time, in search of the part where Father Zosima talks about his past. And he lived a life of kind of, um, he he was really smitten with this girl. I think he went off to war or something and he comes back and the woman that he thought was into him is actually already married. She's got another life going and he was kind of fantasizing or whatever. He was so hurt by it. He kind of like, this is obviously pre-monastery. He kind of went after the um the guy she was married to and challenged him to a duel. Now, I get a sense that in Russian culture in this day and age, a duel was like sacred. If you got asked to do a duel, you did it or else you were not a man. And so Father Zosima of old, let's call him Gary Thompson. Gary Thompson (laughs) challenges some other man um, to a duel. And that man says yes. And so the night before the duel happens... Father or Gary Thompson, <laughs> sorry, Father Zosima, he has this moment of grace where he realizes something. I can't remember what he realizes, but it's a moment of grace where he's like, dude, I'm about to get into like a fight to the death with somebody over something that's already solidified. Like they're already a marriage, man. What I want can't happen. And he's like, this is dumb. And so he repents and he goes to the duel. He lets that other guy shoot at him. And then he, um, then when it's his turn to shoot, the guy's like, all right, now it's your turn. And he throws his gun off into the woods. And he's like, isn't this great? Like, we're brothers, you know? Like, we're done with this. Let's let's settle our beef, man. It's, it's in the past. And the guy's like, what are you talking about, man? It's a duel. Like, you got to shoot. And he's like, I'm not going to. I'm going to join a monastery. And he really does. And so whether it's believable or not from the reader's perspective, this is actually this guy's backstory and and the couple year the gap year he spent before he finally entered in and took the habit was really fun for him really great seeing the reactions of the townspeople not really being able to understand what has happened in him you know he's kind of like one of those larger than life conversions that's just like yeah we'll see if that pans out and it did but in his course of ministry as a monk there was this townsperson 
that heard of his story and kept coming to see him. And they came to see him like off and on for like a couple months. This guy was super intrigued by his story. Well, come to find out, the reason that guy so gravitates towards Father Zosima, once Gary Thompson, is because <laughs> Father Zosima is a story he wants to believe in so much because he has a terrible backstory. He fell in love with the woman. She got married um, to someone else, and he straight up murdered her. And no one knew it was him. He got away with murder. It was the perfect murder. And that woman ended up passing away soon thereafter. Or no, sorry, she's dead. But like something happened to where it looked as though she died of natural causes or something. Anyways, he's 20 years removed from that or something. And it's haunting him, obviously. He feels the guilt of murder. And so he's coming to Father Zosima, wondering if he can garner up the courage to admit it. And Father Zosima tells him, you need to. You need to confess it and bring your sin before the world. And the guy leaves, comes back, leaves, comes back. You get the sense maybe he's not ever going to do it. Finally, he's like, what should I do? And, or no, he, he leaves one time, comes back, and he asks the monk, what should I do? And he's like, you know, confess it do it and let the chips fall where they may, you know, and you'll be free as a bird in your soul. Your, your children will respect you knowing ultimately what you've done. Even your wife will respect you rather than think, you know, to know that you confessed it. So he ends up confessing it before the whole uh, town and none of them believe him because it just seems like he's a psychopath that like too perfectly orchestrated this murder. So he not only gets freedom from his like bound up conscience, but he gets freedom like civilly too. No one prosecutes him and he gets to live the life of a free man. I guess I was just crying because, um, I mean, I didn't actually cry, you know, <clears throat> but uh, I was crying because... It was moving to see the torture, the torture of this man and how close he was to not admitting his sin. But then when he finally did, like there really was such a freedom. He came back to kind of illustrate that story for Father Zosima, who was happy as a clam. Um, but when he came back to tell Father Zosima that he had confessed it and that no one believed him, uh, he also told Father Zosima, you know why I came back twice that same day, didn't you? And he said... No, he said, I came back because I was going to murder you. And Father Zosima was like, what are you talking about? Um, he's like, I couldn't, I could have gone to the ends of the earth. But knowing that you knew, it was the gaze of God. Like he knew he was under, you know, judgment from Father Zosima, like knowing that Father Zosima knew he could do something heroic, but that he wasn't willing to do it was too torturous. He either had to do it and confess or straight up murder the man who was standing looking at his soul. And thankfully he chose to confess it. But I just, just that was what I was most moved by was there's that sense in which it's like we all desire to be, to have decorum, right? To have the outer match the inner perfectly and yet we're weak and so 
until we get hopefully 80, 90, finally strong enough to be the man we want to be to everybody under any circumstances at all times. Um, we long to have that perfect decorum. And this man attained it very, very valiantly. And it was just really awesome to see. So I was moved because it's a, it was an incredible act on the part of one human being. Hope I explained that well enough for the listener to follow. Let him who has ears or beers. <laughs> if any of you have noticed that Sam sounds like goofy or strange or off, he had been drinking a bush light earlier, appeared, <laughs> which is not a sanctioned drink by the speech guys who... <laughs> Who drink only gasoline or a mid to top shelf bourbon from your local grocery store? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> All right, well let's let's wrap this up maybe with uh, with one final question. So Ross, you had a tidbit um, about uh, Dostoevsky. Um. Basically, so he had the parable of the prodigal son read to his children before he died. So, final question, roundabout, what would you have read to your children on your deathbed? So this can't be your words, this has to be someone else's words. What would you have read to your children? What if we're a published author, though, <laughs> when we die? <laughs> Publish something first and then we'll talk about it. Well, I have some editor friends who are sucking so far because they haven't edited anything. <laughs> except one who's not included here. Maybe I should have him on as a speech guy. I would have read to my children um, from, I think it's in multiple Gospels, but I'm thinking of the one from the Gospel of Mark, um, The Calming of the Storm at Sea. So... Um, so paraphrasing, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. Um, he falls asleep. There's a big storm. Uh, master, master, we are perishing. And I think he, he wakes up and rebukes the wind and everything calms down. And he says something to the effect, um, can't quote it. Um, like, why were you afraid just to have faith or something like that? Um, so I don't know how much we want to dive into our answers, but that would be my answer is what I would have read to my children. I would have them listen to their favorite episode of the speech guys. <laughs> God willing, if they're around, they are not around so far. But you do have to name your first kid, Gary Thompson. <laughs> Gary Thompson Schaefer. No, I don't know. I could see myself, like, writing something decades before. I did write my own eulogy once with the resolution. <laughs> Michael Schaefer stood at a trim 6 feet 2 inches, 180 pounds his entire life. But, no, but I don't know. I, I could see myself writing something like a decade or two before 
But man, I would try not to be like too sentimental, throw in a couple scripture passages, maybe a Wes Anderson quote. <laughs> Something like that. I don't have too too much good for this question. But I I really did like a lot um Dostoevsky's reading of the prodigal son to his children. Perhaps not something read, but there is um there is a uh, a priest who once um so he was kind of leading a retreat said that he already had the epitaph picked out for his gravestone and that was um here lies a sinner upon whom god laid his hand mm. and i thought that was like a really cool like final thing you know so maybe uh maybe something like that i have three quick answers they're all semi-serious though first off <laughs> The most trite is that I did tell my wife one time on my tombstone, we need to have the epitaph, here lies a man who loved Casey's. Because I love Casey's gas stations. Like something in particular from them? Just just everything, just, man. Just, the rewards. Casey's, man. The whole Casey's, Casey's experience. Casey's going to be our first sponsor. The, second, the whole Casey's experience. <laughs> Speech Guys, sponsored the by second, Fiat Films and Casey's. <laughs> The second half-serious answer, I'd want to read them Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov because that guarantees me another week. <laughs> if we start today, i still got seven days. And then my last but honest answer, and let me preface by saying we did try and open a will one time. Like I wanted to have my will on the books because some lawyer convinced me it's a good idea and he was like Catholic we went back and forth and he started getting all the stuff wrong. So I was like, now's not the time to, to pay 1500 bucks for this thing. Wrong. So we canceled. But the one thing that I want to insist on now, and I'm saying it through in front of four more people, I've already said it to somebody. I want Steve Rogers to sing the DS era at my uh, funeral, the Requiem mass. So, um, I think that would be its own kind of like, if they were willing to translate the Latin, that would speak to my kids. Mm. Dang, dude. Heck yeah. Okay. Who, who's our mm-hmm. backup? Because Steve is older than you a little bit, so we got like hedge our Steve's got to Steve's got to survive me, man. Because there ain't you no voice it, other than that that I want singing. <laughs> you can do it, Steve. Steve, you got this, man. <laughs> Wasn't that our fake producer's name for a while, Steve? <laughs> Was fake. He is <laughs> our is real. It's a real producer. Yeah, you're right. Matt Sorry. apparently doesn't know what's real and what's fake. Just playing with you, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, it's been a great show, man. What we got coming up next week, or not next week, three weeks from now, Landon will be making his great comeback. Mm. He'll uh, be taking upon his royal vocal throne with that voice, which has been known to boom across 14 counties of Illinois and 12 across Missouri, because it's a little bit holier. Standing at six feet, I'm just going to introduce him again, six feet, seven inches, 160 pounds, the blonde and (laughs) blue-eyed... 
<laughs> gold child of the Aryans. <laughs> We got Landon, who is going to be uh, hosting a speech by David Foster Wallace, um, since he uh, unfortunately passed away some years ago. But very intelligent individual, a lot of interesting things to say about life. We've had Sam Mangieri the third. Don't forget that one uh, on with us tonight. It's been a true pleasure, a true honor, and everything in between. Um, so thank you all for listening and let's cue that music, which Sam was apparently thinking not expensive enough for us. <laughs> 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 will lead us to a better place.